Let us open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8 and consider one of those mysteries. The word mystery may not be used here in the 8th chapter of Romans, but it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we read earlier this morning. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Romans 8 tells us a little about that change. I read to you verses 19 through 23. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Amen and amen. Amen. Romans chapter 8 led us about a Spirit-controlled life in the first 14 verses, telling us, that the effects of justification can be seen and proven upon those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And the ministry of the Spirit is described, and we are told bluntly and plainly, that if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If you can't show by your life a spiritual change, that is identified and defined by Scripture, there's no evidence that you're a child of God. It matters not about your profession. No one in heaven or earth cares about what comes out of your mouth. What heaven and earth care about is you making your calling and election sure, as was just prayed, by living a spirit life, following the things of the Spirit, letting your life Be dictated by the things of the Spirit, not the things of the flesh. And then in the 14th verse, we had sonship introduced to us by the last clause where it says they are the sons of God. And we have a transition there into our sonship. Immediately, we have the spirit of adoption in verse 15, which is the ministry of the Holy Spirit of the New Testament, testifying to our spirit in verse 16 that we are the sons of God. Then verse 17 tells us, if we're sons of God, we're heirs of God. That makes sense. That's logically correct. And if we're sons of God and heirs of God, then we must be brothers of Jesus and joint heirs of Christ because he is a son of God and an heir of God. This is logical. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So we have glory introduced in verse 17 That's going to be our reward for a little tiny bit of suffering here. 
And the Apostle wants to make clear in the 18th verse that the glory that's going to be revealed in us far excels and surpasses the sufferings of this present time. So introducing sonship in 14, describing our heirship in 17 and the glory that's involved in that inheritance, and then telling us that glory is exceedingly great and greater than anything we can suffer in this life, we come to the 18th verse. And in the 19th verse, the apostle has taken up these five verses to tell us not so much for us to learn about what's going to happen to the whole creation, but for us to appreciate that the manifestation of the sons of God to the universe is such a great event that it will have an effect on the heavens and the earth. The focus are the sons of God. But the way that the apostle, the apostle pursues the glory that's going to be revealed in us is to explain that the residual effect of it is going to change the universe. And so we have verses 19 through 23. I mean, brethren, when we're revealed as the sons of God, which is the last day of this universe, it's the great day of judgment. When God Almighty will own us as His children, and the Lord Jesus Christ will own us as His brethren, when our names are found in the book of life, and other names are not found in the book of life, and the greatest division in the human family will be seen, and the greatest division in the angelic family will be seen. The devil and his angels will be cast into hell, and the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire with them. And we shall be forever in the presence of the Lord with the elect and holy angels. It is one momentous day. It is the day for which the whole creation and this whole drama of Human existence in the history of the world is moving toward this cataclysmic day in which the elements will melt with fervent heat and will disappear. The heavens and the earth shall flee away from the face of him that sits upon the throne. But we shall adore him in that day, and we shall admire him who has saved us, and we shall be glorified in that day to give him greater glory. This is the manifestation of the sons of God, and it will have an effect because the heavens and the earth will be changed to give us a real pleasant place to live. Because this one is full of, this veil of tears and sorrows and pain and trouble will be changed to be one of perfect bliss. Where there is no sorrow, no crying, no pain, no sickness. It will all be wiped away. Behold, I make all things new. Amen. Now the apostle is so worked up as he has proceeded from the 14th verse to the 18th verse in describing the glory to be revealed in us, that it is so great in its quality that we cannot make a comparison between our minor suffering now and the glory then, either in quality or in duration. The quality is an exceeding weight compared to our light affliction. It is for eternity compared to a moment. Second Corinthians chapter 4. He has worked himself up to a feverish pitch so that now we get poetry in the New Testament. We get beautiful language here of a personification. Now when you want to make yourself an exhaustive index of personification in the Bible... 
you're going to find that 95% of them are in the Old Testament. But we've got one right here. Because the apostle has worked himself up to where he is just going to burst forth with this description of what's going to take place to the whole creation on that great day when the sons of God are manifested to the universe. It's groaning in travail and pain under the burden of sin right now, like we are. And it's going to be delivered into the glorious liberty to serve us. It's inanimate matter. It's irrational creatures. It's everything that's not a human or an angel. And it is going to be freed up from its restraining, corrupting burden that it bears because of sin, because we're going to have been delivered, and we need an incorruptible place to dwell in, where there is no sin, where there is no death or decay, because we aren't going to have any of those traits ourselves. So we have these verses. I have struggled with how to present these verses to you. I have got carried away myself in trying to attack every phrase of these verses, but I want to share them with you in a way that I hope you will be established in the truth of these five verses and never let astray. And that at the same time, you will be thinking about the dramatic change that is going to take place in the universe when you are personally named by the great God of heaven and given a new name by the Lord Jesus Christ when your name is found in the book of life. Unbelievable glory. Incredible event. And it's what everything is moving toward. It's what you were created for. You weren't created for that stupid job or business you have. You were created for the glory of God, and He's going to show His glory in you, through you, and to you in a day that's coming soon. You weren't created for marriage and children. There'll be no marriage in heaven. The only marriage you were created for is marriage to the Son of God Himself. And oh, to be a bride in that day. And oh, to have a beautiful white dress in that day. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're headed for. These verses are wonderful. So here comes a personification. Now you know Proverbs 8 is wonderful. And you know Isaiah has wonderful passages in it. And you know the Psalms are full of personifications where plants and trees and flocks are clapping their hands and shouting for joy. But now we have some groaning here by a creature. And it's the whole creation. And I spent last Lord's Day with you proving that this creature is the whole creation, not angelic, not human, matter, and irrational creatures. The animal kingdom and everything else in the universe that is not human or angelic. And I'm not going to repeat it. I spent enough time on it. It's very plain and simple to go through an elimination process and to be left with what 22 says, the whole creation. And to what we all know, that the rest of the creation is groaning and it needs to be freed if we're to inherit an earth that we would like to be in. Once we're given an incorruptible body and have an immortal existence, we don't want to be hanging around dead and dying, sick and confused, chaotic things. We don't want tsunamis. And so the Lord's going to get rid of the sea. Because what good is an ocean? Go read Revelation 21 and 22. There is no more sea. What a waste of time to have to get in a boat to travel. 
Everyone's afraid of the ocean. The ocean is a dangerous thing. It's, it's immensity and its power, gone. Tsunamis, gone. There's not going to be death or destruction, chaos or confusion in that new universe. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and there was no more sea. I just believe the Bible. Who wants a sea anyway? I want more land. I'll pick up a few extra acres. You can come over and bring more of your children with you. Whatever. The point being, it's a wonderful place. Anything destructive will be taken away because it's going to be peace and pleasure. There are pleasures forevermore at thy right hand, not pleasures for a season that are then interrupted with guilt, shame, or trouble, or consequences following, but pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16. Jesus Christ knew that well, and so he knew that the agony in Gethsemane and the agony on Calvary, short-lived as it was, was nothing in comparison to that glory. The earnest expectation of the creature. That creature is the whole creation of matter and the animal kingdom. I'm going to use different words to make sure that you understand what it is. It's not angels, good or bad. It's not men, good or bad. They, it has, this creation, all creatures are here personified, meaning they're put in a figure of speech where they take on the attributes of a person. Sometimes we do that to beautify language and to make it more powerful and, and prettier to look at. Here, the whole creation takes on the attributes of a person of expectation. It's waiting. Now, dirt doesn't wait actively with a soul or a spirit, a heart or a mind like we wait. But it's waiting because the apostle is describing here that it is under a burden of corruption for a period of time at which it will end. And the trouble that you now see in the earth, like volcanoes, burying plant life, animal life, and human life with hot lava, is not normal. It's not good. It's not a blessing. It's not beautiful. Do you need help on understanding that concept? Or do we need to get your feet dipped into some hot red lava so that you understand that it has a little bit of pain attached to it? Or would you like a hundred foot wall of it rushing towards your home and you're wondering if your aluminum siding is going to stand up? The whole creation is waiting with expectant hope. And those are human attributes put in this personification of the creation. And what event are they waiting for? What event is dirt waiting for, trees waiting for, animals waiting for, and the moon waiting for? The sun, what's it waiting for? It's waiting to really show some light. Because in that place there isn't a sun like we have, because the Lamb is the light and the glory of heaven. There's no night there. The sun we've got's all messed up. It only shows itself half the time. But there is no night in heaven. What's it waiting for? What event is going to trigger all of this? The manifestation of the sons of God. What does manifestation mean? To show clearly something that has been hid hitherto. Meaning, the sons of God are not known on earth. The sons of God are not known to the universe yet. 
They have not been revealed. They have not been named. They have not been identified and owned by God as His children. But that day is coming, and it's called the manifestation of the sons of God. What a wonderful, fantastic thing. The Bible tells us that the Lord hath made all things for Himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. There is a great day of evil coming, and it is the day of judgment. And the evil is not a large quantity of sin. The evil is a large quantity of judgment. And it's a large qualitative judgment upon all sinners. Because it's for the glory of God and for Himself. That day's been made for Him. And in that day, we'll be owned as the sons of God. Our name's in the book of life. Jesus Christ, our brother, saved from all judgment. And the inheritors of the heaven and the earth... And they shall be changed to give us a glorious inheritance that is greater than anything you can imagine and that I can describe and that Paul was hindered by commandment not to speak of when he returned after getting a glimpse. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12. What a wonderful day that's going to be. When we'll be owned by the Lord Jesus Christ as His own and God will own us as His sons. It's an unbelievable thing. And you get worked up about the most foolish things in this life. We get worked up about a boyfriend. Oh, my heart just pitters and patters when I think of him. We get worked up about a girlfriend. We want a picture. We open our wallet and, oh man, yeah. What a joke. We get worked up because we get promoted on the job. I have a new business card. A new box arrives on your desk, and it's got your name with new letters behind your name. Cool. It says AVP. You come home and you tell your family, I'm an AVP. And they ask that terrible question. How many AVPs are there at BB&T or at Wachovia or at Michigan National Bank? Everyone's an AVP except the tellers. Why'd you ask that question? Now, I, I'm, don't, be, don't anyone be offended with me. Don't anyone with a boyfriend be offended. Don't anyone with a girlfriend be offended. And don't anyone that's an AVP be offended. The point is, we get excited about the most inane things. And we work for them. And when we get them, we are filled with joy and pleasure. But you want to work for something? You should be always abounding in the work of the Lord, for your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This whole church should want to go to Malaysia. What do you want to do? You should come to me and say, how many books did you send them? It wasn't enough. Send them more. Here, I'll pay for more to send. We want to always abound in the work of the Lord because heaven's coming. That's what we should want to sing about, talk about. You should pull this out. And turn to a verse. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And rejoice in what God is going to do for you. Are you all ashamed right now? Are you ashamed with me that we get... Listen, I'm an excitable person. You can get me excited with a good ballpark frank in a bun with mustard, ketchup, and relish. Isn't that a pity? There's no hot dogs in heaven because God wouldn't serve human waste in a tube. 
I mean, animal waste. Listen, brethren, what do you get excited about? A game? Did you get excited last week about that ridiculous game with the weird-shaped ball that Americans play? That other nations thumb their noses at? Because the ball's weird-shaped? They use a round ball when they play football. It's what we call soccer. But the whole world got excited about that stupid game. Half of them would have to work right now to remember what two teams played, let alone which team won. And if you asked them to go back three years and to tell you the teams and who won and what the score was, they would be helplessly lost, all of them. But they get excited. They'll paint themselves colors. They'll go into a stadium where the temperature is 20 degrees without clothes. And yet they can't get out of bed in the morning to get to church. We, we should show our zeal for these things right here. This is the event that we're moving toward. This should captivate our affection and our attention. This should control our choices. This should set our priorities. This should give us conversation with each other. This event. It so transcends everything of this life. The Apostle Paul, he burned himself out in this life because he knew what was waiting for him in the next. We get so wrapped up in our little projects and our little goals and our little rewards and our little favors and our little pleasures, all of which dissipate so quickly and all of which are frustrating and all of which are vanity, according to the wise man who tried it all. But that stuff that I'm referring to now, eternal heaven, the presence of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the innumerable company of angels. It is eternal. It is permanent. It is glorious. It is pleasures forevermore without any dulling or dimming of those pleasures by disappointments, failures, terminations, or any other weakness. It's perfect. We're living here as strangers and pilgrims. Do you look like a stranger and pilgrim every day in your life? You go to work because you have to. Because you're a stranger and a pilgrim here. You go to work so that you can earn some money to be able to give toward the kingdom of heaven. Is everything oriented toward this? Romans chapter 8. For the earnest expectation of the creature, it is straining with eager anticipation of a change that's going to take place in the whole creation on the day the sons of God are revealed to the universe. And those sons of God are you and me. The focus is you and me here. The focus is not kitty cats. The focus is not storm clouds being changed to nice big white puffies. The focus is you. The manifestation of the sons of God. But that event is so great, it's going to have a residual fallout on the universe. Because the effect of sin is going to be taken off of everything where that effect is now present. Except the wicked, for their sins shall be upon them for eternity. Men and angels that are in the lake of fire. Let's go to verse 20. We spent a lot of time last Sunday on verse 19. I hope that you understand it. I hope that you'll never let anyone preach anything different to you or to anyone about it. The creature is the whole creation of verse 22, and that is made crystal clear by verses 21 and 23 that separate the creature from the sons of God. They are not the same thing as some have taught. Verse 20, for the creature was made subject to vanity. The whole creation was put under 
a judgment of vanity because of sin. Vanity is a word that describes something that is futile, worthless, wasteful, profitless, restrained, dysfunctional, messed up. One of the best verses, just using, just trying to find out what the word means in Scripture, as we look at it here in this context, is Psalm 78 and 33. I'll read it to you. Speaking of Israel, when they sinned against God, therefore their days did He consume in vanity and their years in trouble. And what, what do we know about them? They wandered around in circles, back and forth, back and forth, no progress, no productivity, no pleasure, wandering in the wilderness until they all died. Now does that sound like a good description of the whole creation? Going through its motions, day after day, month after month, year after year, lunar cycle after lunar cycle, no production, no improvement, winding down till death. Animals, plants, birdies, fishies, all die. Why? Sin is the cause of death. They didn't choose it willingly. It was a burden put on them. They're irrational. They're inanimate by man's sin. And if we want to see some of that, and there's so much material I'm going to skip over that is not necessary for most of you, but some of you, if you would like it, the outline will be available. Look at Genesis chapter 3 very quickly with me, and let's read what the Bible actually says was put on some aspects of the creation. And we could go elsewhere... But we want to see what does Genesis 3, one place, tell us about the vanity of the creation. This is the first place you should go. God has just created everything, and behold, it was good and very good. Now when God says something is good, it is very good. When God writes good on a paper or when God writes good on a creation, it is unbelievably good. We ruined it. It was paradise. How many rainstorms were there? How many parades or picnics got rained on? None. How much animal cruelty was there? None. How much death was there? None. Sickness? None. Tears? None. Crying? None. How much shame was there? None. How much modesty was required in clothing? None. How much food was there to eat? Of every imaginable kind. How much work was involved? Eat it. We messed it up. And so here we read in Genesis chapter 3, and many of you would have read this last evening by our plan. But let's start at verse 14. And the Lord God, you know, He questions the man in verse 11. Look at the shame and guilt that is already in existence and the lying and the excusing and the blaming of others. There are so many things that we can pull out of Genesis 3 that happened as a result of sin that you endure every day of your life. Those precious three little girls, in the future they are going to blame you for every bad thing in their life. 
Not all the time, but just enough for you to know that they fit in Genesis 3. It's, a, it's terrible what we read here immediately. The man that once walked with God is now confronted by his creator, and he wants to excuse himself and blame the woman that he was deeply in love with, and he loved her so much he chose her over God when he was offered the fruit by her. It was an act of rebellion, not an act of ignorance or an act of deception. But he blames her. Where did that come from? Where did that corruption of nature come from? Sin. Immediately. They went to clothe themselves. In heaven, you wouldn't need clothes. In a real world, you don't need clothes. In God's creation, you didn't need clothes. But now they immediately needed clothes because of the guilt and shame associated to them and with them in the presence of each other because of sin. It just messed up everything. And now that beautiful woman was going to turn into an old hag and die. Her teeth were going to fall out. Her hair was going to fall out. Everything was going to fall. Because of sin. In verse 12, Adam blames Eve. In verse 13, Eve blames the devil. So let's start in 14. The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed. Revelation 22 tells us there is no more curse. Here we start curses on the creation, and it's on an irrational animal, a serpent, used by the devil to deceive Eve. You're cursed above all cattle. At least cattle have four legs to stand upon, and so they don't have to lie in the dust and eat dust all the days of their life. Thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Now that's a miserable existence, to slither around for the rest of your life eating dust. You know, when we say that we're faster than someone, or a team is faster than another team, Make them eat your dust. We have expressions sort of like this describing the judgment upon someone who's inferior. And this inferior creature is put down in the dust. In verse 14, verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. They're going to hate you, you snake. Every time they find you, they're going to call their husband to get the shotgun twenty-two. Axe or shovel to come out and chop your ugly head off. They can't stand your forked tongue coming out of your wicked mouth with your beady little eyes. This is the Lord. Go try to put a snake in your daughter's hands. And if your daughter wants to hold a snake, she's got a problem. Because it's contrary to the way God made women and snakes. There are exceptions to every rule. And I hope there's not too many sitting in this assembly. Look at what it says, though. Look at what's being messed up already because of sin. And I don't mean humans. Right off the bat, the serpent's going to have to slither. Every time you see a snake, just look at it and remember slithering. Wiggling back and forth to make progress on its belly. With no legs and it can't stand upright and it's got to eat dust. All the days of its life because its face is right down there in the dirt. God said that in Genesis 3.14. Verse 15, women are going to hate it. 
The second half of the verse is spiritual and salvation oriented. We'll pass over that for this sermon. Verse 16, under the woman, he said, now I've mixed them all up because of Genesis 3, mixing them all up. Some dealing with the creation, irrational things, inanimate matter, and some human. All of it's here. 16, under the woman, he said, I will greatly, not slightly, multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Most women, unless they have an epidural, are not laughing or cheerfully singing songs when they're giving birth. If they are, they're generally lying. So you've reduced yourself to a few nutcases who think that giving birth is an exciting event. God doesn't consider it exciting. He considers it a sorrowful, painful judgment upon women for listening to the serpent and disobeying God. And so it is described in the 16th verse, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow. Thou shalt bring forth children. And furthermore, I'm going to aggravate the relationship between you and Adam. He is now going to put you in subjection and your desire is going to be to him because you have proven your inability to make decisions. You have proven your inability to reason through matters because you're so easily deceived. You're so emotional. You took a look at the tree and you said, you know what he's telling me just might be true. If I eat that fruit, it looks so good. It looks like it would taste good and it looks like it would make me a god. That is how Eve reasoned. It says so in the first six verses. That is how naive and ignorant a perfect woman is. Oh, I know you can call me anything you want. All I want to do is tell you what the Bible says. Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. That is a judgment upon the man-woman, husband-wife relationship. It was activated because of her sin. And so those days when your husband tells you to do something that you don't want to do, and you've got to do it anyway because you know that's what the Bible tells you to do, it's Genesis 3.16, because of sin in the universe. We could have all got along a whole lot better if you hadn't eaten that, Eve. Verse 17. To Adam he said... Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Inanimate matter. Cursed. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. You say American farming has brought productivity to a zenith. We are able to bring so much food out of the ground. When was the last time you went to a restaurant and they gave food away? Are you still paying for it? It does not yield like it can yield. You have never seen a God-blessed field. God-blessed in the sense of prior to Genesis 3. Never seen it. There is so much risk involved with farming. There is so much effort taken to keep it from the thorns and thistles that come up in the next verse because the ground is cursed. That is inanimate matter. And when someone says, well, have you ever heard the ground groaning? I don't need to hear the ground groaning if it's a personification, sir. But if you ever read Genesis chapter 3 that says dirt is cursed, that dirt does not yield its fruit like it could and like it will. Because there'll be no more curse in Revelation 22. 
Thou sh- cursed is the ground for thy sake. In the second part of verse 17, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. It is going to be a miserable existence that you're going to have to scrape out of the dirt. Adam didn't have to do anything like that in Eden. All Adam had to do was walk around and just reach out and pick it and put it in his mouth. It just grew. All he had to do was dress it. Well, let's just shape this tree a little bit different over here so that we can have a little path to walk through at night, honey. And the evening and the morning were the eighth day. All he did was dress the garden. He never got a hoe out and tried to scrape that hard dirt and get down into it and put a seed in it and try to get something out of it. He didn't have to do that. God did it for him. He didn't have to work up some mechanism of irrigation because God watered it with a mist that came up out of the ground. He didn't have to worry about sitting in a, in a house all day reading a book because it was raining outside and he couldn't go pick. There wasn't any rain for 1,656 years. The first raindrops fell when Noah was closed into the ark. Right. What a curse. Look at verse 18. Thorns also and thistles. You have any problem with weeds in your yard? Where do you think those ugly things come from? They come from Adam and Eve. God knows what's ugly and what's pretty. Thorns and thistles grow up where you don't want them to. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. You're going to have to work hard to be a farmer because the ground isn't going to yield its power to you till thou return unto it. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. It is going to be hard to make a living. It's going to be hard to make a living in agriculture. It's going to be hard to be a farmer in order to raise enough. Now we say, we we have plenty. Yes, we do. But we've got to work hard to get it. You've got to work hard to be able to go out and get a good meal. Not that thing that I mentioned earlier that you put in a bun and squeeze yellow stuff on. It takes work to go out and do it. And if you have a decent sized family, it takes a lot of work to get real food. Good food. The finer things that aren't made by Oscar Meyer. Verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Well, if he made them coats of skins, what gave up their skin? We have the first death. Irrational creatures. Animals were killed to provide skins. Abel kept sheep not to eat. They didn't eat sheep. Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel didn't eat rack of lamb. Noah and his sons ate rack of lamb. He kept sheep for sacrifice and clothing. Cain raised what they ate, the fruit of the ground, and he had to dig and scratch in it to be able to have enough for them to eat. And then the Lord God put up a flaming cherubim to keep him from anything good in this world, because all the good was behind the cherubim that turned every way that kept the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life. We don't want him to get in here and eat the Tree of Life and live forever. Let's give him a miserable existence of dying and death, scratching and trying to get a living out of it. In the sweat of his brow, it says in verse 19, in the sweat of thy face 
shalt thou eat bread. And so that sweat, whether it's in Jonathan's master's degree program for Michelin, or whether it's in sweat of you physically doing something at work, or sweating bullets, as we say sometimes, over a dilemma that you can't solve, that sweat that comes out of us is necessary, and that sweat for which you have to wear deodorant to work is because of this curse. You didn't have to work so hard until the ground wouldn't yield its fruit. And you had to go scratch in the dust that you were taken from. Since you didn't own your Creator as your ruler, and you didn't obey Him, judgment came. And God put it all off limits. God ordained killing animals for clothing and sacrifice. All animals were originally herbivores. It says so in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 30. We assume that only now after the fall did they begin killing and eating each other, which is part of the vanity to which they were subjected because God killed the first one in providing skins for Adam and Eve. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Sin is terrible. But this passage isn't terrible. This passage is fantastic. This passage says that those things that were cursed are waiting with an expectant hope of being delivered into the glorious liberty. Now the vanity that's described in verse 20, we can offset it with the liberty that is described in verse 21. So whatever freedom creatures are able to have under God, they don't have now. They're under vanity. They're they're restrained. They're restricted from showing the good things that they could. You know, I've known people who have had German shepherds. German shepherds are one of my favorite breed of dogs. You say, well, you don't even like dogs, so how can you have a favorite breed? I like German shepherds. But you know, a German shepherd is a high-strung animal. I've known people that have raised German shepherds for many years and had those German shepherds bite them. Bite them in the face. Bite children. Because they're, they're, they're under the bondage of corruption. Right. So much is going to be changed. They weren't, it wasn't willingly. In verse 20, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly. It wasn't the choice of dirt to be cursed by God. It was Adam's foolish choice that brought God's judgment upon the dirt. So it says, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same. The reason dirt is cursed is not because dirt chose to be cursed. It's not because dirt likes to grow thorns and thistles. It's not because dirt doesn't like to give a real plentiful harvest. It's because God put it in under subjection because of Adam, because Genesis 3 tells us exactly that order of events. That's why we believe it. That's how we understand this verse. It wasn't their choice. It was God's choice by His reason. By reason of him. That's not Adam. Adam didn't do subjecting. Adam was subjected to death, dying, sweat, labor, trouble, sorrow. By the God who subjected him, his wife, the serpent, and the dirt. To a a relatively fruitless, vain existence. But he has subjected the same in hope. Now, dirt doesn't hope, because this is a personification. But God subjected the dirt to a future deliverance. When the children of God are manifested to the universe, and they're put into complete liberty, 
we will have liberty to pass through matter as the glorified body of the Lord Jesus Christ did. We will have the liberty of never dying because we'll be immortal. We'll have the liberty of never corrupting because we'll be incorruptible. We will have exhaustless liberty. We'll have complete freedom, is what liberty means, from the sorrows, tears, crying, trouble, pain, disease, sickness, and dying that we presently have. And so will creation be delivered from all those things because they're going to get the same liberty. No more sickness, disease, dysfunction, and dying. It will yield its fruit. It will show us what God is able to create. When it is called paradise in the Bible, the third heaven to which we're going, it is paradise. You say, well, don't roses have to fade and die? That's only because you've seen one world. There's another world coming where roses don't need to fade and die because there's no curse upon the ground or upon the roses or upon anything. It's been lifted. All of it through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, which undid the sin upon the elect of God, and the residual power of that was to eradicate sin from the universe. Except the lake of fire where sin will be punished upon the wicked angels and wicked men. They will receive their punishment in this separate place. But where the elect are gathered, where all the sins have been paid for, they'll have a new heaven and a new earth. All the sin that is left in the universe will be wrapped up upon the perpetuators of that sin. The devil and his angels and wicked men. And we'll enjoy peace, prosperity, and pleasure with the Lord forevermore. There is hope for this natural creation. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The 21st verse tells us. It starts out with the word because. For the apostle is explaining the word hope that ends the verse 20. The 20th verse. Hope is there. What hope does the dirt have? The dirt has hope because God is going to deliver that creature, the whole creation, matter, dirt, animal kingdom, from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. What is the glorious liberty of the children of God? We shall be glorified. There will be no sickness. There will be no dying. There will be no sorrow. There will be no trouble. There will be no pain. All those things will disappear. God hasn't told us all the animals that are going to be in heaven. And so for all you animal lovers, I hope that you can somehow get the Lord Jesus Christ up a little higher, that you won't worry too much about how many animals are there. But now if God thinks that animals are a lot of fun to have around, there will be animals there, but they'll be a whole lot better than the ones you've had. You won't have to work so hard to train them. It's going to be lifted into the glorious liberty that we're going to have. Enough for now. May the Lord bless these things to us that it will open our eyes as we look around and realize, why do I have to work so hard to get a positive return in this way of employment that I've chosen? When we see our wife in childbirth, no, I don't want to see it again. When we see our wife in childbirth, we should recognize Genesis chapter 3. Whenever you see a snake, recognize Genesis chapter 3. Whenever you see thorns or thistles, weeds, or prickers, as we used to call them, prickers, growing up, then remember, it's part of Genesis chapter 3, but it's going away. There'll be nothing sorrowful, no pain, no tears, no crying, 
This is Revelation 21 and 22. Because there's going to be glorious liberty. You have never seen the yield per acre of ground that God has created and not cursed. Never. The amount of chemicals that we have to blast the ground with to get the yields that we presently get out of our fields prove that there's a curse upon that ground. But you won't have to do that in the future. We'll just dress it and eat it like original paradise. Sin did so many terrible things, but Jesus Christ has done so many wonderful things. Thanks be to God, which hath given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.